and welcome to the Maddest Touches. I'm your host, Chris Tusa, and this is Charlie Bradbury. The Midas Touches, what a week last week was. I mean, I went down to Newbury and watched one of my tips, Eldorado Allen win, tipped at 10 to 1. And I also saw one of your tips, Fernambul Sivola, who's a friend of the podcast, win at 5 to 2. So that was a pretty good weekend in terms of betting. This week, we're going to be talking on a pretty sensitive subject with a guy that I've come to know quite well over the last two years. Charlie, are you looking forward to meeting and talking to Patch later? Yeah, as you say, you know him. I, I've never met him before, uh, but obviously heard of his story and, and, and read a few things about it. So I'm sort of prepared for it, but very at the same time, very interested to you know hear what he has to say and, and, and him, him telling his own story. Yeah, it's going to be um, probably quite an emotional interview, um, hopefully powerful and a message uh, that a lot of you out there will hopefully learn from um, moving forward. We've decided, uh, sort of because of the topic of this week, that we're not going to be doing tips um, and we're just going to focus on the content of that interview. Uh, we will, however, make special mention to one of our friends who is having his first ride up at Haydock in the Hunter Chase there on a horse called Overworked Underpaid. Uh, you're excited. You're actually going up there, aren't you, to watch? Yeah, yeah I'm heading up to Liverpool. Uh, well, hopefully, so long as like the, the weather's fine and stuff, because obviously there's a storm. Um, but otherwise, I will be going up. Uh, he's running the last race to 4.25. Um, that's, yeah, Overworked Underpaid, outside of the field. But well, I think we're going to have a note from him on... Um, a word from him on how the horse is and and yeah. his chances, but I've I've actually been to watch this horse before already at um, Charing, in a, in a point to point where like no one was there, um, and George actually uh, unseated, so it was a bit unfortunate. <laughs> I went all that way and uh, it was unlucky charm. Yeah, I I actually might be because he actually won the last two times subsequently, so it doesn't say much for you my. Probably support. cancel your train ticket then. I know I might just. Um, uh, but yeah, I'm really excited and he is a very talented jockey, so I'm sure he'll, he'll run a good race. Yeah, I actually spoke to, to George earlier and I asked him what he thought his chances in this race were uh, and if he was excited for his first ride on a major Saturday. Hi, Tress. Um, I think the reason I'm probably answering this question is because I will be appearing on your podcast. So firstly, I'd like to say thank you very much for the support. Um, in terms of Saturday, yeah, it's very, very exciting. Not my first ride under rules, but hopefully it is a, a more productive and fruitful one than, than my, first, my first ride under rules, which was um, about a year ago. Um, yeah, it's, in terms of the race, it's, it's, it's looking very competitive. You've got, you know, the, the winner of the Irish champion, Hunter Chase. You've got the winner of the Aintree Fox Hunters in there. 
Um, so it'll probably be the, the outsider of the four, but you know, we go there with a real live chance, I think. I think the ground's crucial for, for overworked, underpaid, and um, we've had plenty of rain, and, and this storm's going to give, give a bit more rain, so hopefully um, that should be in our favour. And yeah, we'll, um, we'll go and give it, give it our best shot, but no, re- really excited. Great to get George's input there. Uh, well, I think he's definitely going to win now. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Um, 10 to 1 available at the moment. I think he's valued for £7. Uh, we'll see what happens. I think the race is at sort of 4 o'clock or something. It's 4 425, I think. Yeah. 425. Um, so everyone tune D- into that. David Maxwell, obviously, with the, with the strong favourite, but we all know he can't ride. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, we'll leave it there for the introduction. And we'll move straight into the interview but, after. Sorry, didn't we just have one more thing to say about... Uh, well, I'll, I'll say it because you've obviously forgotten. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> um, last night, and we actually promised we'd mention this, uh, last night we got an unbelievable result in our five-side football. Uh, Tris <laughs> uh, had a man-of-the-match performance, scored four of our five goals uh, in kind of Diogo Jota fashion, I'd say, uh, including the clincher right at the end uh, where he took it down beautifully and uh, finished past the keeper to win and then ran the full length of the pitch celebrating. Yeah, it was um, actually quite intense looking back on it. But um, yeah, it was the best. Yeah, the best feeling I've had on a on a five-side pitch for sure. Channeled my uh, inner Portuguese man who's just sort of sleeping, but occasionally, occasionally comes out. Um Let's actually leave that there for now then and uh, go to the break. After the break, we're going to be talking to um, Patch Foster. See you in a bit. Right, we've now come to the point in the episode where we can welcome our guest for this week. Joining us, he's become a friend of mine over the last two years um, through golf. And in my perspective, I think he's got one of the most important stories to tell when it comes to racing, gambling and an addiction that you can't see. It's not like having alcoholism. It's not like having a drug addiction. It's an addiction that no one notices and it's not spoken about enough. So I'll leave that there and welcome Patch Foster to the podcast. Patch, how are you doing? Good, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. Um, it's great to have you here to be able to talk about a, a story that is so important. I was, geez, I was getting quite emotional uh, introducing you there. Um, I want to first take it right back to the start when you were at school you were a budding uh, cricketer you know the one of the most popular guys around and then went to uni and as the story starts it was a trip to coral um that sort of first kicked off what was i guess you'll agree with me a sort of a dark 10 years yeah absolutely um as you just said um school was great for me um, I loved everything about it and I had one real kind of ambition in life and that was to be a 
professional sportsman like a lot of people and fortunately for me I had some ability and I managed to have a little taste of that um, when I left school having just signed a contract with Northamptonshire uh, and then I went to university I went to Durham like a lot of people I recognized that professional sport is so cutthroat uh, and Durham had a center of excellence so there was an opportunity to kind of do both um, and that's where I started gambling um, Unlike a lot of people nowadays, gambling wasn't part of my life in any way until I got to uni. Um, it wasn't something people did at school because you couldn't really. Um, and obviously that's changed. So I started at uni and I didn't know much about it. I wasn't interested in it. It wasn't something that my family did um, or friends did or talked about much. But then when I got to uni, I started and, yeah, started in a in a coral shop on a fob tea machine. I was playing on roulette I put two quid in the machine and 12 seconds later it landed on green zero and as I always say my life changed for forever from that point god it really is crazy how how you know things can literally hinge on a moment like that um I, I was just curious like was there any reason why you went in like, as, as in obviously it, well, I'm sure there was but but I'm just curious to know why yeah I mean my my mates at uni, my new mates, it was a couple of weeks after Freshers' Week and they, they had gambled before and it was something that they did. And they sort of said to me one Saturday morning, like you do with students, we were all hung over. We're going down the bookies to put on our football accumulators. Do you want to come with us? And I didn't really know what they were talking about, but I thought, why not? I followed the crowd and, and then I went. And I always say to people, it was so weird because I as I say, gambling wasn't part of my life and I walked into this place and it was like heaven because there yeah. was greyhounds on one TV, horse racing, football, there were machines, everyone was talking about sport and I thought, oh my word, I can't believe I've just discovered this and I think that's the case for a lot of people but what I didn't realise is obviously what could happen um, and I think I would have found gambling whatever but that moment is is how I was kind of introduced if you like. Yeah, I mean that's very interesting. Like, do you do you believe that you're sort of more predisposed to to have a, like a gambling? Well, I, I wouldn't say addiction, but like you know, you are perhaps more likely to become hooked to it than other people, perhaps. Yeah, I think so. Um, I guess one of the kind of myths is that you have to be a certain type of person. Um, I've obviously in my recovery looked in to a lot about addiction and there's a lot of theories about it and I try not to get too wrapped up in it because I think it's like a combination of different things but the one thing I would say about gambling and I would say it's a pretty common denominator is the kind of competitive nature yeah. because it's like a drug for competitive people because it's all about winning and losing and it gives you that on tap and for me that was massive because I wouldn't stop if I lost until I won and then when I won I like that feeling, so I try to get it all the time. Um, and I'd always had a very addictive personality. I was always quite compulsive, obsessive. Um, but I always see it, saw it as a bad thing. But actually now I realise that if it's channeled in the right way, it's um, such a really positive characteristic. But uh, I wouldn't say I was the most self-aware at, at that yeah. point in my life. And, you know, the, the, the sort of the first big win you had was this champions league accumulator where you walked into a betting shop and put on what was it a sevenfold accumulator sixfold yeah sixfold and it returned um, uh just under thirty-five thousand pounds um 
And that was, as you just said, that was definitely the, the turning point because up until that point, um, and it, it's strange, people can't believe it when I say it, I'm not anti-gambling. I don't think it's the devil, it's evil because a lot of people do it, have a lot of fun and yeah. are in control of it. But that was the turning point for me because up until that point, gambling was fun for me. I was doing it more than I should have done. Uh, and I was keeping it secret, which is never a good thing. But that's because yeah. I saw it as being bad. But it was time and money that I guess I could afford to lose because I was still doing everything that I needed to. I wasn't in debt. And you were still uh, being paid what... by Northants at that stage as well? No, I'd been released by that point. But okay. obviously I'd had a bit more money than, than most people because I'd been paid to play cricket through um, being a student. I was working in the city. Um, and that point changed everything because when I won that amount of money, I didn't realize that's often when you're most vulnerable. And I then just thought I was invincible. Um, but the worst thing about it was then is when I guess I could start to compare it to being like a drug. Because yeah. if I didn't win 35 grand or close to it, didn't give me the same feeling. So then I went from putting 10 quid on a horse uh, to putting 100 500 quid because I wanted to win that amount of money and if I won 300 400 quid which is an awful lot of money it was like well that's not 35 grand and I know I can win that and obviously now it feels stupid but in the moment that's what it was like and that's why I lost it so quickly god it really is it's it's staggering how it, it you know it is one of these things that that happens often behind closed doors and it's something so personal that you know people don't really share and it's not something that's that's obvious to the to the naked eye mm. um what were the bookies like in terms of sort of keeping you hooked on it because obviously with online bookmaking now you know you're a you're a customer in the way that you're getting push notifications from um you know john lewis bookies are doing this um as well were they doing that for you uh, when you were in your worst stages yeah i would say i was probably um, I suffered from the system when it was probably at its worst, when they they did used to take advantage of vulnerable people. I think the most obvious way that was the case for me was through the VIP schemes. So I was a VIP member of seven different online operators. I had 76 different online accounts at one point, but with seven of them, I was basically treated like royalty but actually I realized now I was the biggest loser and I had somebody that I could ring text whatsapp anytime I wanted to put a bet on every time I needed a free bet and anybody who needs a free bet hasn't got enough money to gamble anyway they'd give me one I was offered tickets to this that and the other so that was probably the way that it was it was most difficult because that didn't do anything for an already sizable ego, which always comes with the addiction. And um, yeah, they that was probably the, the worst part about it. And I always say to people, I take responsibility for what happened because ultimately it was me doing it. But at that point, they were very definitely making it worse. Um, I think I had about 110 grand's worth of free bets um, over the time that I gambled. Jesus. and um stuff like that is hopefully going to become a thing of the past because i think gambling's okay for a lot of people but what they can't do is is kind of prey on the vulnerable yeah i, c I couldn't agree more yeah i mean you touched on it just there but like 
do you think that free bets is one of the biggest problems within gambling right now in terms of just keeping people hooked and also getting people new people involved yeah i think so um as i sort of say i always say anybody who has a needs a free bet doesn't have the money to gamble but it's definitely how it's it kind of hooks you in and i think people will gamble whatever they don't need that kind of in added incentive um the kind of with the advertising i think with young people if you see that you're going to get a free bet or this is going to come with it it encourages you to do it and i don't think that's needed i mean i opened up 22 accounts on the way to Cheltenham one year because I got something like 1500 quids worth of free bets that I could use that day. Um, so yeah, I think that is a bit of a problem. Uh, and I think probably something that needs to change, particularly when it comes to hooking young people in. Yeah. Uh, I'm also curious, like, did they ever turn your money away? Uh, no, not mine. Um, because they knew they were going to get it back. Yeah. Um, and again, I think that's the other thing. And, and through some of the work that I do now, we basically try and help them understand what it looks like from somebody who's got a serious problem or an addiction and things like interacting with someone when they have a big win is really important mm -hmm. rather than just trying to get it back off them as quickly as possible. So um, no, they didn't. Yeah. And yet you do hear stories about people who are successful, who get accounts shut down and I've got a problem with that because yeah. fundamentally it needs to be safe, but it also needs to be fair. And exactly. there were very definitely things that, that probably weren't fair in the past. Um, and I think we're starting to, to see some positive changes, albeit maybe not quite quick enough. Yeah. Um, just going back to sort of the story, you know, when you move towards your, your, you, you'd come out of the city by this stage, um, you'd stop working in insurance and then, you became a teacher um how did it sort of play out from from that point yeah i i thought when i left the city i'd won and lost that huge amount of money i'd got myself into debt i thought you know what if i change my lifestyle it would get rid of the problem but actually i realized now i needed to change me and i became a teacher because my family were teachers so I thought people aren't going to ask any questions they're not going to think that's weird but also I thought if I was in that environment I wouldn't have the time or money to to do it and it would wouldn't be part of the culture but of course that was stupid because you can do it and actually what I found really difficult about being a teacher most teachers love the holidays uh, but I found them really difficult because I was so bored a lot of the time because I had yeah. so much time on my hands and I would spend that time gambling. Uh, and obviously, financially, I wasn't earning nearly as much money, but I was still trying to gamble to the levels that I had been previously. And my salary would start to run out on the first or second day of the month. Um, I then think, how on earth am I going to pay off my debts, pay my bills, live? Uh, and of course, at first, I'd start to take loans through the, all the sort of normal methods, then turn to payday loans and unsecured loans which God, i could talk about for hours but yeah. no one ever needs to be doing that and then uh eventually out of pure desperation i, I started turning to individuals and and what i yeah. did was i approached parents of pupils that i taught for money because i wasn't stupid i knew lots of these people were wealthy people I knew what jobs they did and I knew they liked respect to me, had the money that they could probably lend me. I, 
I promised to pay these people back. I didn't. I gambled it all away. And of course, now I look back and like regret that so much, not just because of the kind of financial consequences, but also the way I took advantage of people. But it, it was purely out of desperation and a need to feed my addiction. Yeah. And then there's obviously the um, the title of your book, <clears throat> Might Bite. For those of you who don't know much about racing, Might Bite. Um competed in one of the um the closest gold cups um in history back in 2017 um what happened in the run-up to that race and and why is the book called might bite yeah it's um for two reasons really one is obviously after the horse uh and the other is because it's a, a play on words um basically in to cut a long story short in march 2018 um, I found out that I was going to lose my house job. Um, I thought I was probably going to go to prison um, and I panicked, uh, as you would. Um, the irony of a gambling addiction, as you said at the beginning, Tris, is that no alcoholic has ever tried to drink themselves sober. But as a gambling addict, you genuinely believe that gambling is going to get you out of it when actually it's probably the last thing that is. Yeah. And I honestly thought I could win my way out of it and it coincided with the Cheltenham Festival um, which was the biggest week of my year my favorite week of the year and I honestly thought I could I could win the money back during that week and I tried having borrowed some money off people and I won I lost at one point I had nothing and I started to put stupid bets on or ridiculous bets and I had a one bit of luck that would probably never happen again and it turned into just over 50,000 pounds um but it wasn't enough. It was it was worthless to me at that point because it needed to be 10 times that amount to get rid of the debt that I had. So out of desperation, I put it all on my bite. Um, it had been a horse that I'd sort of followed. Um, it was quite an unpredictable horse yeah. uh, on its day. Unbelievable. Uh, sometimes completely the opposite. Um, and I just decided that I'd put it all on it in, in numerous different ways across multiple accounts. And it was literally a, a matter of life or death at that point, because I thought if it wins, I'll win that money back. I realize now I probably would have gambled it all away. Um, and if it loses, I was going to kill myself and um, it lost. Uh, yeah. And it also happened to be one of the best races. And in the book, I, there's a line um, which basically says it was like phenomenal sport because it was but it didn't feel like that to yeah, me exactly. um and it came second and yeah i only had one option as far as i saw it and unfortunately for me it, it didn't transpire as i'd intended to but that is why the book is it's called my bite yeah well i just want to say that i'm so um fucking glad that you, know, <laughs> you are still here to be able to tell that story um to so many people because it's going to be so important and that message um of talking to people about these issues is so key and i think you know with the wider point with with um mental health and particularly men's mental health um you know it's so important that people do listen uh, and they read your story and they talk about it and about these issues so that they don't become as um acute as yours did ultimately yeah, yeah. um if you had a message that you could say to yourself aged 21 at university, what would it be to someone in that situation now? 
Yeah, I think what you've just said is absolutely right. And I think that's ultimately why I wrote the book. Um, I think for me, there's kind of two parts to it. One was, I guess, specifically around gambling. And that is that if you're going to do it, it's not the devil, it's not evil, but you need to talk about it. Um, and you need to be open and honest about your relationship with it because actually part of my problem with gambling is I always say to people I would have found it easier if it was drugs or alcohol to admit it because I thought gambling was so bad. I thought people would just think I'm an idiot. And actually it's not the case. It can become a serious problem. So if you are ever in that situation, then you're not alone. You're not the only person and, and talk about it. And I guess the other thing is kind of, more general when it comes to the whole mental health thing i always saw like vulnerability and showing it as a sign of weakness and i think part of that was being born and brought up in changing room environments which were quite cutthroat yeah. a lot of banter um you were never going to admit something was wrong and and there's a time and a place for that but ultimately and and also what people need to appreciate is nobody should ever feel that they can't talk about something because they're worried about what other people will think or say and that was my problem is I kept it all quiet because I was so worried what people would think I didn't want them to judge me and actually when I did tell them their reaction is totally different to what you think it's going to be people don't react in a way that you necessarily think they're going to be people are very supportive and if they're not you don't need them to be part of your life um so my message to people is is be open, be honest, talk um, and make sure that if you are in that situation that you realize you, you're not alone and it's not you being stupid. Um, some people do have serious problems with, with this and other things. And, and if you can find the strength and courage to, to tell someone, then um, it can get a lot better and, and you don't have to do it. Yeah. I look back now and I think, well, I wish I could, but I can't. Uh, and that's fine. I accept that now, and and life's not any worse for me. Yeah, you you spoke earlier, Patch, about sort of channeling your energy. Like, I, can you tell me a bit more about sort of how you do that now? Yeah, um, I mean, nothing will ever replace gambling for me, and I had to come to understand that. Um, but accepting that was was massive, and there are things that I can do that help. Obviously, playing sport is massive for me now. Um, exercise again I put on a lot of weight I was very unfit and luckily I've got a bit fitter um, but sport gives me that kind of competitive edge that rush buzz so that's big for me I'm very obsessive so Chris alluded to it things like golf are yeah. great because you can always get better and you you do things like that and you just you just find ways to do it but you've also got to work what find out or work out sorry what works for you because yeah. it's not the same for everybody yeah, yeah, um but channeling it i i do it through work now which is a real passion of mine and people go god you're doing this that and the other but it's just the way i channel it so um there are positive things but my addictive personality definitely manifests itself in all sorts of weird and wonderful yeah, ways yeah. these days and how was it when you were you know writing the book and you were sort of reliving the um the story did you find it therapeutic doing it or was it difficult to sort of relive these these memories yeah i found it very cathartic in many ways because 
it was the only way I was able to talk about things that I'd never talked about. Um, so I had to dig pretty deep when I was doing it. And I've written about things that yeah, obviously I'm really not very proud of, but I wouldn't be able to tell people those, but writing it down helped. So that whole process was pretty emotive, but it was great. Um, uh, the book that you read now is probably very different to the version that I wrote down, which was even more kind of raw. And Will, who's written it with me, has, has done a great job because it certainly wouldn't have got published in its uh, <laughs> original form. But yeah, it was a it was actually a, a cool process, um, and the response I've had from people has been has been amazing. So it's made it all worthwhile. Yeah. Well, I I hope that everyone who's listening. Um, to this we'll pick up the book um go and buy it not in terms of a sales perspective <laughs> but because it's such an important story um where can people get their hands on the book um because that is actually really useful yeah it's as they always say available in all good bookshops um amazon is is probably the easiest way but yeah it's um it's in most good bookshops because i've got a good publisher so yeah i mean i hope people read it and i think it's hopefully a book that whether you gamble or not it's interesting and it's a topic that isn't talked about enough as you said and um it doesn't need to carry the stigma that it often does it doesn't need to be a dirty word um and the more people talk about it and the more awareness there is then that's a good thing as far as i'm concerned awesome absolutely um patch thank you so much i could talk on this subject for hours i know Jen, um, i feel the same <laughs> is, yeah. but i think we should we should let you go there um i just want to say a massive thank you for coming on and talking about a subject that is really difficult to talk about and people don't talk about it enough so i'm so happy that we've been able to do um this episode being a racing podcast you know everyone is always focused on these big wins and yeah. and and betting big sums and winning big sums and it's all about sort of who's the biggest guy here and actually having this conversation is so important. So yeah, a massive thank you from me. Yeah, um, and for me, obviously, there's really, really interesting stuff. And um, yeah, well done. Uh, well no, done. it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Wow, that really was uh, a powerful interview that hopefully a lot of people will learn a lot of lessons from. Mm. What are your outtakes from that? Well, I, firstly, I wasn't joking when I said I had so many more questions. Um, to to ask him like I, I literally i was writing them down as we went along like i thought it was it's such an interesting topic i mean i've got my own views about it like there's obviously a, a review of the gambling act ongoing at the moment and and like sort of waiting to see what happens with that i guess a bit but but there needs to be reform within um sport and within gambling like it's become i think the two things have become so intertwined uh that it's become a real a real problem uh and yeah, the it, it, it really needs a review. And like the, these kind of stories, these powerful stories, the exact thing that will will help the right outcome, um, you know, prevail. Yeah. Um. So you know, people like Patch just need to keep spreading the word, and and yeah, he's doing a great job of it so far. So very commendable and well done him. Yeah. Um. Hope you guys have all enjoyed this week's episode, uh, and haven't found it too uh, glum and and uh, and, and gloomy. Um, well, the thing is, 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 you know, it's a happy ending, right? He's, yeah. he's sort of, as he was speaking about, he's channeled his energy um, and he's putting a positive spin on what was clearly a, a very, very 
um, hard and at times unbearable 10 years for him. So, and, and that and that's the key takeaway, I think, really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's got to be. Um, cool. We'll leave that there for, for now. And we'll be looking forward to, to next week, looking at the Saudi Cup, which is the richest race in horse racing, uh, where we might even have a word from one of the jockeys. For now, though, we'll say goodbye. It's a goodbye from me, Tris. And it's a goodbye from me, Charlie. Goodbye. Bye, guys. <laughs>